0: Before we turn to Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8, let me start by saying thank you very much for praying for me while I was in the Philippines. And if you're wondering what this outfit is, this is the national dress in the Philippines. And I thought, because I'm giving a report of what I did while I was in the Philippines, I might as well lean into this costume. And I really appreciated your prayers because it was a rather difficult week for me. It wasn't just about the 20 hours of travel and the jet lag. What was most difficult was being confronted with horrific evil. Um, it's hard for me to describe, so I, I thought I'd use a video that the International Justice Mission um, uses to show its work in the philippines so let's start there jessica if you would please play that video the internet has changed the way we buy and sell it has also changed the way young children are being sexually abused and exploited today right now at a massive scale at the speed of a click this is the online sexual exploitation of children Young boys and girls are sexually abused, forced to perform sex acts on themselves or each other. All it takes is an internet connected device to live stream the abuse to a sex offender online. Sexually motivated offenders pay a local trafficker. Direct the sexual abuse. Record and distribute the exploitative materials. All in the comfort of their homes and dead. Over half of the traffickers are the victims' parents, relatives, close family, friends, or neighbors. They transact using the same messaging and social media platforms we use to talk to family and friends. Victims suffer severe trauma, and live-streamed and recorded photos and videos perpetuate the abuse. As one survivor said, It took me years! to recover from the painful experiences, from the traumatic experiences. In some cases, the online abuse leads to rape by the foreign sex offenders. The foreign sex offenders and local community traffickers exchange contacts, so a child may be one case at a time, resting hundreds of victims. There's still so much more to be done. Years of working with local authorities to fight the online sexual exploitation of children in the Philippines has taught us that it is a global issue, needing a robust global solution which involves working with global partners. with our IJM Center to end online sexual exploitation of the children, to bring this crime to the world's attention and expand our Community Protection Program to other countries to create safer communities for our children. But IJM cannot accomplish this alone. All sectors, from governments to tech, banks and internet companies key roles to end this global crime. No longer shall the internet hide the sexual exploitation of children. It takes partnerships across the world to end it for good. Will you join us one of the things that impressed me about international justice mission in the Philippines was that they were committed to strengthening the Philippine justice system by filling the gaps. They work hand in hand alongside investigators, prosecutors, to provide resources and advocate for these same um, government entities so that they can do their jobs well. In fact, when we met, we had the privilege of meeting with um, the RCMP at the Canadian Embassy and uh, one of the global on behalf of IJM, and the RCMP officer who was tasked with um, um, ending online sexual exploitation or cooperating with the Philippine authorities to end, to to combat online sexual exploitation was very impressed with IJM Philippines and all the work. It, It seemed as if, for him, the prosecutors, the law enforcement officers all looked towards IJM Philippines and We are very pleased to to see the work that they were doing. But IJM's efforts to promote restorative justice do not stop at simply arresting and convicting those who exploit the children. See, what makes this crime especially despicable is that 40%, 40% of these crimes are facilitated by a parent of the child. And another 40%, is facilitated by close family members who have been asked to take care of the child. And so rescuing the children means taking them out of their homes. And they don't even know that what is being done to them is wrong. They just know that they're being taken out of their homes. And so they are being traumatized by being rescued. And so the IJM staff gave us these shawls, These are standard equipment for them when they rescue children. The shawl is used to cover the head of the child to protect his or her identity from the prying eyes of media, to keep them from being traumatized even further. The shawl is a symbol of safety and warmth that IJM offers to the children as they embark on the arduous journey of restoration. These children need years of counseling and support in a safe environment. And again, IJM has stepped into the gap by helping to establish shelters and improve existing shelters. And this is where our church has had the privilege of stepping in. In 2018, Crestwick gave about $120,000 to help fund the aftercare program of IJM Philippines in cooperation with a Fellowship. And we had an amazing moment at the Canadian Embassy. The RCMP officer was describing a recent case. He talked about a buyer in Peel region who had been arrested. And as a result, a four-year-old boy in the Philippines was rescued. And he was housed in a facility that IJM had helped to build in collaboration with the government's Department of Social Welfare and Development. And it so happened that the director of aftercare for IJM Manila was there in that meeting, and he had advocated for the renovation of that facility while he was working with the DSWD. And right at that meeting, we realized, wait... 2018, 2019 was when that facility was renovated. The funds that was that were used to renovate that facility came from the fellowship, came from us. And this 72-year-old man who had worked in government for 40 years, who had come to faith as a result of working with IJM, was so overwhelmed with gratitude. After the meeting, he jumped up, ran to me, and gave me a big hug. I said, thank you. This meeting has been 15 years in the making. And as meaningful as that was, that wasn't even the most meaningful moment of the trip for me. I had to sing Jesus Strong and Kind because it was the song that the women from the Philippine Survivor Network sang with us, singing Jesus Strong and Kind with these women who had suffered horrific abuse and who, by the grace of God, had been restored, gave new meaning to the words of that song. It gave tangible expression to the truth of those words. And then the following day, we went to see rescued children in a shelter that our funds had, helped, had also helped to build. They sang the same song. And I was struck particularly by the fourth stanza. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross, he will come to me. The children didn't just experience the salvation that Christ brings Spiritually, they also experienced a physical rescue. As a result of that rescue, they are now in a shelter where they are pointed to Jesus on the cross. These children, um, as part of their rehabilitation, their restoration, have the chance to attend a church that is pastored by the husband of one of the IJM staff. So I was was so glad to be able to see these children, not just physically rescued or emotionally restored, but being reconciled to Jesus Christ. And spending time with the survivors and seeing the efforts to restore them, I could not be more grateful for the money that we had given to IJM. And I am praying that in the coming days, we would be able to partner further with the fellowship as they partner with IJM. At the same time, I recognize that the efforts of IJM are but a drop in the bucket. Evil and injustice seem so ingrained in the world. It's easy to be overwhelmed and it is easy to lose heart. But I'd like us to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Because this passage gives us great comfort and encouragement. And in fact, motivates us to partner alongside IJM in their work of restorative justice. Daniel chapter 7. We'll be covering Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8. When you come to Daniel 7, you have a shift. The book of Daniel shifts in chapter 7 from inspiring stories the disturbing visions. Instead of interpreting visions, Daniel is the one having visions. And from narrative, we go to what is called apocalyptic literature. And admittedly, this passage has long been very divisive, but I hope that as we study this text, we can come to a better understanding of the life-shaping message of this text this passage asserts very simply that despite appearances, God is is in sovereign control over the whole world. And so we need to be faithful to him regardless of the situation. Now, I mentioned that this passage is what is called apocalyptic literature. According to Ian Duguid, Biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, which is an age characterized by conflict and its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. This revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery, and has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. Apocalyptic literature thus proclaims a theology of hope to those whom the world has marginalized. It reminds us that God is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. In the meantime, whatever the present cost may be in terms of suffering, obedience to God is the only way. Now, to understand apocalyptic literature properly, we need to consider the, what the original audience would have understood and its significance in light of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 recounts a dream that Daniel had. And as you read it, you realize that it's meant to give us a panoramic view of history from the exile to the consummation. You might say, within the structure of Daniel's book, that it is the counterpart to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. If you look at the chiasm, uh, do you have the chiasm? There you go. You see that Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, and then Daniel's dream in chapter 7. But where Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue was meant to emphasize the might of these kingdoms that would nonetheless fade into the dust. God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar, look, as powerful as your kingdom is, it will eventually fall, and all kingdoms eventually will fall. Daniel 7 is meant to show us the evil nature of these kingdoms. Let's read Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, up to verse 8. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there, bef- and there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs and its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat, your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now you will realize that apocalyptic literature is written to create a mood or an emotional effect. It's very similar to the writings of Edgar Allan Poe. The turbulent sea in verse 2 evokes fear. Because in the ancient Near East, the sea was associated with chaos and and danger. And to see the wind raging from every direction implies massive, out-of-control power. And each beast that comes out of the sea heightens this fear. Because each one looks more and more twisted and unnatural. You start with a winged lion a ravenous bear, a four-headed, winged leopard. I mean, if you were, even as adults, if you were dreaming about that, you'd be waking up screaming. But as if that were not enough, the fourth beast is even more frightening. It's like a sci-fi nightmare. You have a robo-beast that destroys everything in its path. And then there's a horn that speaks boastfully. What does it all mean? Well, I think Tremper Longman is correct when he says the best way to view the imagery of Daniel 7 is not in terms of four specific evil empires, but as four kingdoms symbolically representing the fact that evil kingdoms of an unspecified number will succeed one another from the time of the exile to the time of the climax of history, when God will intervene and once and for all judge all evil and bring into existence his kingdom. It is to say, we live in evil times. But that's not the end of the story, because suddenly, in verse 8, the scene shifts. The chaos of the sea is replaced by God's peaceful throne from which a river of fire flowed. Let's read verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Instead of evil beasts, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, the infinite eternal God who reigns in majesty and splendor. And Daniel, in this passage, is being reassured that our infinitely holy and righteous God is in control. Evil is going on, but God knows what is happening. And he will pass judgment. That's why it ends with, the court was seated and the books were opened. He is on his throne, even while these kingdoms wreak their devastation because behind the turmoil of the world is a cosmic battle between good and evil what we were what we saw in the philippines is just an expression of a cosmic battle that is going on but praise god the outcome is not in doubt Evil might seem to run rampant, but we are told in verse 11 and 12 that the beasts will be defeated and God's kingdom will rule forever. Look at verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, that's the truth that we must cling to, that we must affirm, that we must live by, that the sovereign Lord is in control and he is the victorious judge of all men. All the bestial kingdoms will be defeated and a son of man would be given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed brothers and sisters, we find this text fulfilled in Jesus. I had us read Mark 10 because his favorite title was the Son of Man. That was a deliberate allusion to Daniel seven fourteen, And as the incarnate Son, his lifelong submission to the Father shows us what it means to be truly human. When he was tried in the Sanhedrin in their kangaroo court, the high priest asked him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus answered, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, Jesus is the true King who has triumphed and who will reign forever. His people might suffer in the here and now, but victory is certain. That was the reality that God was communicating to Daniel. But you will notice moving on from verse 15 onwards, Daniel was deeply troubled by the vision of the beasts. And you can understand that. See, Daniel had experienced the trauma of exile, the trauma of Jerusalem's destruction in his youth. Imagine how you would feel if in your old age, when you're in your 80s, Daniel, there is more suffering to come. The suffering hasn't finished. But to give him confidence that God's purposes would prevail, in chapter 8, God gives him another vision about the near future. We are told that he had this vision in chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 4. During the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, he saw a ram with two uneven horns, and then he sees an unstoppable ram or goat, Uh, uh, he sees the unstoppable ram with two uneven horns attacked by an angry male goat with one horn. The goat wins, but the horn is broken and replaced by four horns, and out of one of these four horns came a little horn that became great. Now, if you look at chapter 8, verse 20 to 22, we don't have to figure out what it means. It's explained by Gabriel. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media, Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between the eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. So, the Greek empire would break into four kingdoms, and a master of intrigue would arise out of one of these kingdoms. He, too, would seek to destroy God's people, but he would himself be destroyed, verse 23 to 25. Now, majority of scholars agree that Daniel's vision was fulfilled over a period of 200 years, beginning with Alexander the Great defeating the Medo-Persian Empire. And you can put yourself in Daniel's shoes. In the third year of Belshazzar, he would not have understood what was going on, right? But you remember that he saw the fall of Babylon, and he became a part of the Medo-Persian Empire. So that he would have been reassured, oh my goodness, God knows what he's up to. God can tell the future, because he's planned it. And so we see Alexander the Great defeating the Persian Empire. Daniel was probably dead by then. But history tells us that Alexander the the Great died at the height of his power. And after his sons were assassinated, his empire was divided among his four generals. I think there's a map there of how Alexander's empire was divided into four sections. Cassander was over Macedonia in Greece. Lysimachus over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus over Syria and Mesopotamia, and Ptolemy over Egypt. And if you're thinking Ptolemy sounds familiar, yes, Cleopatra, the famous Cleopatra, was part of the Ptolemy dynasty. And the little horn is understood to be Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a descendant of Seleucus. He persecuted the Jews and tried to force them to worship the Greek gods to the point of setting up an altar to Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem and went as far as sacrificing a pig on the temple altar in Jerusalem in 167 B.C. As a result, the Maccabees revolted. Now, Antiochus, we are told, died of a bowel disease so painful that it drove him crazy, or maybe crazier, because um, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes means the manifestation of God. Antiochus thought himself to be God, but uh, he was destroyed, and not by human power. Now, the description in Daniel 8 is so accurate, some scholars actually thought, or have said, that the book of Daniel could not have been written in 530 BC. They've said that it's probably in the 2nd century. We believe that it was written in 530 BC because we believe that God knows the future because he's planned it from beginning to end. Scholars also recognize that the actions of Antiochus against the Jews was so brutal that he has been viewed as a foreshadowing of that little horn with human eyes and spoke boastfully. Now, all that to sum up, Daniel was so, so distressed by the fourth beast and the little horn that in verse 19, chapter 7, verse 19 and 20, he kept asking for an explanation. He said, I want to know who, what is going on. What's, what does this mean? So he was told that there would be a king Who would persecute God's people, they will suffer for a time. But look at verse chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. Here's the bottom line. Whatever else you may want to interpret from Daniel 7 and chapter 7 and 8, I want you to focus on verse 26 and 27. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Again, God was reassuring Daniel that whatever may happen, God has history in hand. He can tell Daniel what the future holds because he has planned everything from beginning to end, and he is actively working out his plans even through the evil actions of men. Even in the darkest times and the worst opposition, God is working out his purposes. His triumph is assured, and that's why we, his people, need to be faithful to him. In fact, that's what gave Daniel the courage to be faithful, even if his efforts did not seem to accomplish anything. He knew that God would eventually triumph and would vindicate his faithfulness. And as I look at the work of IJM, you know, that's also what gives me comfort. I look at their efforts and I think, you know, you, you, you're hoping to end slavery by 2030. And I love that goal. I hope it would happen. But even if they could end slavery, sexual exploitation is still going to be a thing. Evil has a way of changing form and adapting to circumstances. We know that outside. We know that in our lives, don't we? We get rid of one bad habit. We replace it with another. But our comfort, our confidence is that our God will ultimately triumph. And even our sinfulness will be removed. First of all, our sin has been paid for. And God is at work to change us and transform us. And we know that to be the case because that victory was achieved by our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, he told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He was deliberately echoing Daniel 7, 14 and Daniel 7, 27. I hope you understand that we have been living in the last days since Jesus died and rose again. And yes, there will be times when God's people will be persecuted. But we can face even that future, knowing that Jesus has already triumphed over the kingdoms of the earth. And he triumphed. Not by unleashing his angelic forces, or even by exerting his mighty power. He triumphed in the weakness of the cross. He died as a sacrifice and substitute to remove the stain of our sin. And by his resurrection, he has brought in the new creation into being. So that the resurrection changes everything. We are certain that all things will be made new. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is even now reigning in glory. And when he returns, his kingdom will come in his fullness. His victory will be consummated. All that is wrong will become untrue. And everything will be the way it's supposed to be. And that's why I find this passage Comforting and invigorating. Again, the work of IJM might seem futile, but its work is not in vain. Their work is pointing forward to that future day when evil will be completely defeated and righteousness will reign. And for you and me, as we live in the already and the not yet, We know we will face opposition. We know we will face hardship. But the vision of Jesus' ultimate triumph gives us reason to persevere, to seek justice, to pursue righteousness, regardless of the pain and regardless of the cost. Because notice what this text promises. Look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty and power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to whom? Notice, to the holy people of the Most High. You know what that means? We will reign with Christ. That's the promise. Our King, King Jesus, has triumphed. He is reigning. And when he returns, we will reign with him. And that's a perspective that guides us. And that raises the question for you and me. Whose kingdom do you live for? Are you living for the kingdoms of this world that will ultimately fail? Or are you living for God who reigns and rules forever? You and I, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, are joint heirs with Christ.